Hidden Gems, Episode 46, The Giants of Easter Island. Welcome to Hidden Gems, a board game podcast where we review unusual, forgotten, and underappreciated board games. We're your hosts. My name is Chris. Now I'm Jason. Thanks for listening to our show. It always feels weird with only two names in there. <laughs> it's been a while since we've done a duo episode. I know. What was the last one? I'm trying to remember. It hasn't been that long. It may have been me and Bill. Was it episode 43? I recorded episode 43 on here. We can cut all this. But. Yeah. <laughs> was it? It was longer ago than that. I don't know. Maybe not. No. I had just our two tracks on here for 43. Really? I got to look now. Oh, yeah. It was. Three Sahashri and Tigris and Euphrates. Oh, shoot. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> We can't even remember what episode we do. <laughs> That's right. I thought it was me and Bill, but I'm probably remembering that because it was such a traumatic experience us recording together. I'm telling you, it is a miracle that yes. that episode got out. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. <laughs> it was slightly faster this time, but only by a little bit. <laughs> yeah. feel much better when you're in the room. Yeah. Yeah, so obviously schedules are busy. We're post-Christmas. We're through the holiday season, but Bill was quite busy with family. Cameron was quite busy with family. Jason and I, busy as well, but maybe not quite so much. We were able to get these plays in, but it was down to the wire, let me tell you. Yeah, fortunately, we don't have family in town. Or, Well, my wife's family is in town, but we see them a good bit, so it's right. not a huge deal when they're in town, and we go out of town way before Christmas to see my family. So we're just around here yeah, doing nothing, which is great. Same. We usually go to Asheville and you know, there was that huge freeze, yeah. big winter storm. It got and real cold here. People. It did. It for, got in the team For North Carolina. For North Carolina, that is an emergency. <laughs> and where I'm from in Asheville, which is in the western part of the state, the reason we did not go to my parents' house for Christmas is all the pipes in Asheville froze. Oh, wow. And burst. And so they didn't have water. Most of the people in and around Asheville didn't have water. Hotels didn't have water. They had like porta potties coming in. Oh, man. So we canceled that. Yeah. And they actually came out here this last weekend. But yeah, that was a rough storm. Whole extra family with four boys in the house <laughs> and no plumbing doesn't yeah, sound no like way. a good idea. <laughs> nope. So yeah, Christmas was fun. We had a good time. And like we did last year, we got to talk about the post Christmas haul. Yeah. You know, what are some of the standout things that you got? Some of the toys that you got to play with. What'd you have fun with? What'd you enjoy this Christmas season? Yeah, so the biggest toy I got was a new guitar amp, actually. Oh, no I, way. I've been having a lot of fun playing around with. I play guitar, not professionally in any way, but... Better than he would lead on. Yeah. <laughs> but I recently got an electric guitar. I've always played acoustic. Got an electric for my daughter because she's trying to learn how to play. Okay. And I finally got her interested to play regularly now that I've taught her a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> it was the only thing that got her interested but uh, yeah i picked up a cool amp that does digital sound modeling you hook it up to your phone and you can change the amp settings and all that stuff and dang switch the sound over to metallica or whatever you want it to sound like pretty easily so it's pretty cool that's awesome i did have a chance to check out a couple indie games on oh, the switch let's hear them. marketplace you haven't told me so, about them yet i'm excited to hear yeah yeah so the first one i think i actually started playing it back in november called haiku the robot i've heard of this game so it's a metroidvania mm -hmm. i wanted to like it more than i actually did yeah but you know we're a review show so i feel like i should talk about the 
talk about the ones I didn't like too. Yeah, for sure. It's heavily, heavily influenced by Hollow Knight to the degree yeah. where portions of the map are like the exact same. You can tell, oh, this region is, uh, what's the green area? Uh, the, Hollow Knight. The, yeah, the, the green mouth or the green, what's it called? Yeah, green something. Yeah, yeah. There's just different areas that pretty much basically map one-to-one. Right. And some of the graphics on the map are the same. Doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah. But it's like a dumbed-down version of Hollow Knight. Yeah. So I know a lot of people who played Hollow Knight and didn't like it were like, it's just too big. It doesn't give you any guidance on where to go. It's just too much running around trying to find stuff. Yeah. If that's you, but you still want to try Metroidvania, this could be a good one, mm-hmm. maybe, because it's a little bit more direction. It's a little smaller map right. size. But... Ultimately, didn't end up loving it. The bosses were kind of okay, but then the final boss was super, super hard. Like, way, way harder than anything else in the whole game. <laughs> like, the game is kind of like a dumbed-down version of Hollow Knight, like right. I said. So you're like, oh, yeah, this is fun. It's not super hard. I'm just going through. And then you get to the final boss and it just, like, kicks your butt. So you like, didn't finish it. <laughs> Do I ever? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Did you really not? <laughs> no. <laughs> How course, many games not. have you gotten to the final boss and just been like, you know what? I think I'm good. Well, you're not going to like our discussion of Ender Lilies. Oh, my God. Are you? St- oh. Okay, so speaking of Ender Lilies, <laughs> I'll give you a group about that later. I was just getting ready to say one of the dangers of copycatting a really great game is you have to be unique enough to make it worth it. You know what I mean? And I feel like Ender Lilies feels very much like Hollow Knight, but I do feel like there's enough about it that's different to where it justifies being played. And yeah. I still feel like Ender Lilies is a fantastic game and different enough, whereas this one sounds almost like a clone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Ender Lilies wasn't one of the ones that I played, but we can talk about it because we have talked about it on the show. So I did finish <laughs> it, or at least finished it for me, which means getting to the final boss and then stopping. <laughs> <laughs> but really liked it. So I will second Chris's yeah. opinion on that one. It's Check it out, people. Worth checking out. It's solid. Tell me about some of the stuff that you've been playing. What'd you haul in for Christmas? Yeah, so, gosh, so many things. I could talk all episode about all the fun stuff I've been playing, but I'm such a big kid. I still am. I love Christmas. I love birthdays. I got a lot of graphic novels, a lot of video games. I read a ton of graphic novels post-Christmas. I probably read like six or seven. I'm going to talk about one, but I'm going to save that to the end. First thing I'm going to talk about is not a hidden gem. It's a video game. Cuphead. Yeah. Yeah. Super hard. I finally dived into Cuphead. Cuphead is my nightmare because you know how I get to the final boss and it's really hard and I'm like, I don't want to do this. Cuphead is it's like the whole game. It's the final boss, the whole game. <laughs> yeah. So I will say Cuphead is a challenging game. If you're not familiar with what Cuphead is, it's a side scrolling action platformer slash shooter where it's pretty much all boss fights. There are a couple of levels that are actual stages where you can get coins, which are very important in mm-hmm. this game for upgrades, but it's mostly bosses. It's done in that rubber hose style artwork, like Steamboat Willie. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. 20s, 30s style. If you're familiar with the board game's Vagrant Song or Townsfolk Tussle, it looks like that, basically, if you've never seen Cuphead. I think most people probably have. Yeah. I will say this about the difficulty, and I say this as unarrogantly as possible. Believe me, I'm not <laughs> trying to be one of those guys. I'm really, really not. But I've been playing through Cuphead with my son. My 10-year-old son, my youngest, mm-hmm. Hayes. Now, granted, he likes these kind of games, but he's 10 years old, and we are almost through with it, and he is holding his own. It is difficult, but I don't think it's as difficult as people make it seem or make it they, out I wonder be. how much of a difference the two-player makes. I've never played it two-player, and playing it solo is 
pretty hard. Well, and that might be the difference because in two-player Cuphead, you can do this thing called parrying. You can parry your dead teammate and bring them back, basically. So if your teammate dies, you can bring them back into the fight, basically. That definitely helps, I think. Yeah. But I honestly think years of playing old-school Nintendo games just hone you for this type of experience. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of newer gamers have the patience for a game like Cuphead. Because it's just memorization, really. Yeah. It's you get a fraction of a bit farther, you learn a little bit more, you die. You learn a little bit more, you die. You learn a little bit more, you die until you've figured out all the patterns and you execute, right? Yep. I think old school games used to be that way. And so for me, it just feels normal. But I think for a lot of people, they're like, oh, this is just torture, you know? Yeah. But it's doable. It's very doable. My son's all in. Like I said, he's 10. He is going through it by himself solo. I think I told you this the other day. He's completed the whole first island. There are four islands in the game, I think, with an A ranking by himself. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. <laughs> yeah. So as long as he's at my side, we're going to be okay. But all that to say, Cuphead, solid. I get the hype. I think it's worthy of the hype. If you're down for old school style challenge in a game, you need to play this game. You really do. It's very, very good. Yeah, so in that vein... I don't generally play running gun type games, but I heard about one called Hunt Down. Have you heard of this? I don't know this one. I'm not all the way through it yet, but I'm close, and I've been enjoying it so far. So basically, it's running gun, 80s style pixel art. There's five worlds, and each world you're up against a different gang in the city, and you're one of three mercenaries, or uh, it's not a mercenary, what is it called? A bounty hunter. <laughs> okay. You're, you're a bounty hunter. And so each of the five gangs is divided up into five bounties, and each bounty is a boss at the end. Yeah. I haven't played a ton of running guns, but it's fairly boss heavy. There's five bosses per level, and, okay. they're, and they're all pretty unique, which has been pretty fun because it has some of that try to figure out the pattern. Each boss is a little bit different. It's pretty enjoyable. Is it top down? No, it's side scrolling. But what's unique about it a little bit, I think, is that like in Contra and stuff, you can aim in all the different directions, right. right? In this game, you can only shoot straight ahead of you. Oh, wow. So there's some platforming. You can only shoot straight ahead of you, but there's doorways all over the place. And if you stand in front of a doorway and you hit up, you duck back into the doorway. And so you're like uh, out of the range of fire. Right. You're like taking cover. Right. So you can, okay. you can hide behind barrels and boxes and cars and stuff, and you can sneak into doorways to get out of sight. Right. So, yeah, check it out. I think it's a game that you would like. Yeah, it does sound like a game I would like. Sounds interesting. All right, what else you got? <laughs> All right, next for me. So I'm going to get slightly more, well, very much more obscure here. I bet a lot of people have not heard about this game. So again, talking about Hayes, Hayes is getting all the spotlight there. We've been playing a ton of video games together. As I've mentioned on the podcast before, all my sons love games, but they all have different tastes in games. Bryce and Knox love first-person shooters on the computer, really. They just play Valorant. Kale, my second son, all he does is play Pokemon. He loves those kind of games, right? Mm -hmm. But Hayes is like me. We like the same kind of stuff. So he's been playing a lot of a game called Enter the Gungeon lately. And I'm not going to talk about Enter the Gungeon, but basically it's a dungeon crawler roguelike game that's in the bullet hell style. I've talked about that before where there's yeah. just hundreds of bullets on the screen and you're trying to dodge roll and avoid them and survive basically. Right. So I've been trying to get him into the shoot 'em up genre or the shmup genre. Have you heard of shmups before? Yep. 
Shmups is a whole class of games. The most well-known one would probably be Ikaruga. Have you seen that game? I have seen it. I've not played it. Yeah, it's insane. So Shmups are known for being incredibly difficult. Like incredibly difficult. And the reason for that is literally the screen is just filled with projectiles. Yep. It's bullets everywhere. And in all of this information overload your mind trying to process what's going on on the screen, you have to find a path where you basically don't die. Right. Right. So I'm thinking Hayes would probably like these, but I don't know of one where he won't just die instantly. Well, I found one. It's called Death Smiles. Death Smiles. (laughs) Death Smiles. It's like Smiley Face? Yeah, like, no. (laughs) Death Smiles. It's an older game that has been re-released on the Switch. It was originally released in Japanese arcades in 2007. Okay. Okay. But it's a horizontal style shmup, and you're actually not a ship. Most of these you're like a ship, like R type or Gradius or whatever. And this one you're actually a person. And the story is nonsense. It's an anime style story where you're trying to kill demons or whatnot. But basically, long story short, it's just complete and total fun. Explosions, crazy stuff just happening on the screen 24 7 crazy bosses you fight a cow the giant cow in the game the final boss which we did beat is demonic emperor tyranno satan okay (laughs) (laughs) the game is nuts but the reason why i recommend it is it is fun to play but it has lots of different difficulty settings and you can put it on the easiest setting and it's like training wheels for shmups, basically. You learn how to play them without dying immediately and getting frustrated. Yeah. And he's been loving it. And I have been too. And you can play two players at the same time. I think it's great. Highly recommend it. Death Smiles. You can get it on the Switch. It's pretty awesome. Nice. All right. Well, I have one more. All right. So this is one that I have known about for a very long time. And I've just never pulled the trigger on. And... Found it on sale over the holidays. A lot of stuff on the Switch Indie Store goes on sale over the holidays. I actually got Blasphemous, which you've talked about yes. on the show before, for like five bucks. It's a good one. But haven't started yet. Finally finished that one. But this one is called The Return of the Obra Dinn. Have you heard of this? I do know this one. Not played it, but I know it, yeah. Yeah, so if you've ever seen screenshots of this game, it, so looks, cool. like, it looks like it's from an old Macintosh computer yep. from like the 1980s. Yep. Right? It's like one-bit graphics, but it's actually completely in 3D. And actually has pretty decent graphics. It looks when cool. You start moving around. Like I think the, it's black and white, right? It is. You can actually change the settings between different types of old computer so like monitors, sepia so like, or something. Yeah, yeah, to different styles of old computers. But so if you see a screenshot of it, it looks pretty terrible. But when you're actually in the game <laughs> and moving around, it's pretty cool. So the premise of this is that you are an investigator, yeah, and you are in a rowboat next to this big 17th century sailing ship. And the guy who rode you out to the ship is like, all right, go do what you need to do and come back and let me know when you're done. And so you're like, okay. So you climb up the side (laughs) of the ship and you can obviously tell that something is wrong with it. Something is not right. And you have this notebook that you receive from this mysterious guy. And it's just blank. The entire notebook is blank. And you have this weird compass with a skull on it. And so as you explore around the ship, you eventually start to find remains of bodies on the ship. And when you find the remains of a body, you can use your skull compass and it transports you into like matrix bullet time. 
Yeah. So it's basically a, a still frame where you can move around, but everyone else is frozen. And it's like a moment in time, a moment in time when that particular person whose remains you just found died. Yep. So what the goal is, is that you're trying to piece together all the pages of this notebook. Because each time you find a person who's dead, it fills in the page of the notebook for you and it gives you some details. And you're trying to figure out who they are and how they died. Mm-hmm. And there's like 60 crew members on the ship. And so your goal is to identify all 60 crew members and what happened to them. <laughs> That's a lot. Right. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's really cool because it actually feels like you are investigating something. Right. Like you're walking around in these scenes where everything is frozen and you're trying to look at the little details of like, okay, this arm is reaching this direction. This guy was over here in this screenshot, but 30 seconds later, he's over here doing this thing. What happened in between? <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. I will say the way that it ends, in my opinion, was a little anticlimactic. Okay. But getting there was fun enough that I would say I, I would recommend it. And it's definitely a puzzle. It's hard. It's hard to solve. Yeah. I did beat this one, so, <laughs> but there was no final boss. There was no so. final boss. <laughs> But I did finish it, so there. But yeah, definitely check it out. Very unique, yeah. very cool style of game. I've had my eye on that one. All right, well, that's all I got. So I had one more thing I was going to talk about. <laughs> but we just did a time check. We're running a little bit long, so I'm going to save it. We'll keep it all video games this episode. All right, all right. Got one more graphic novel I want to talk about. I'll tease it. It's called The End by mm-hmm. Anders Nielsen. And it's probably appropriate for me not to talk about it right now because I wouldn't really say it's a downer, but it would be a very dramatic change of pace of what we're talking about of like these really fun, <laughs> exciting games. And then talking about the end, which in a lot of ways really shook me when I read it, to be quite honest. Huh. It is a jarring read. It talks about death specifically. It's an autobiographical graphic novel about a guy and his accounts of how he dealt with his girlfriend's passing. Hmm. And I would say for all of those people out there, Bill, that say that graphic novels are just superheroes and fancy art and all that, books like The End, I think, could get people to get really into graphic novels because it really is just a mind-blowing book. But I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to tease it. I kind of want to be on the episode where you do talk well, about it. So well, I'm, I'm going to let you borrow it, actually. All right. I've got it behind me. I think you would enjoy it. I think Bill would like it, too, actually. But uh, it might be fun to talk about it together, actually. So yeah, we'll save it. All right. Cool. Well, on that note, we should talk about our cocktail. Oh, uh, well, before. before. We, we got a little oh, bit before. of business. Okay. Just right. quickly, a couple of things. Just want to remind people about our 50th episode coming up. Ah, uh, yeah. If you haven't heard yet. We're taking recommendations from our listeners for which lots of votes. We do. It's really gotten popular, which we're super excited and thankful for. But we're taking recommendations from our listeners about what three games we're going to review for episode 50. So in order to do that, all you have to go is become a member of our guild on Board Game Geek. If you do that, you can go onto our page and under the header, more information. It occurred to me I should probably be more specific about this if people aren't familiar with BGG. So if you enter our guild... 3874 on BGG. Under the header, more information, there's a link there that's titled Hidden Gems Podcast colon Gem Minor Recommendations. If you click on that link, it will pull up a list of all games that have ever been recommended to us by our listeners via BGG. If you go on there and make a recommendation or just like a recommendation, thumb one up or comment on one, you will contribute to what we review in episode 50 and... 
it will enter you in for a drawing to get a copy of my favorite game of all time, Strasburg by Stefan Feld. So please do that. When our 47th episode releases, you will be cut off. That's our cutoff date. So you've pretty much got no more. No more. You've pretty much got three weeks from this release. So I just want to give you a heads up on that. Also, really quickly, want to give a thank you to our Patreon backers. We've added quite a few Patreon backers in the last few weeks. Yeah. So we really appreciate you all. Thank you for doing that. If it's something that you've been thinking about, we encourage you to do so. Today on our backstage episode, Jason and I are going to be talking about In the Hall of the Mountain King. Yep. So if you would like to hear our thoughts about that game, we're not talking about it on this show. We're going to be talking about it backstage, which is exclusive to our Patreon backers. So if you want to hear our thoughts on it, that's the way you could do that. Sounds good. Talk about the hotness. Yep. But not on this show. Okay, cocktail time. Jason, do you know what you're drinking? Uh, I know you've had this before. You know I've had this before. I mean, surely you have. I mean, you went to college. The Long Island iced tea? <laughs> it is a Long Island iced tea. <laughs> All right. I thought so. I was like, it tastes like Nest tea with alcohol in it. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, I took the easy way out tonight. I found some pretty fun little cocktail tiki style drinks but i didn't have all the stuff to make them and i was like you know what easter island i expected a full-on cocktail in a moai head (laughs) with the umbrella tiki cocktail drink (laughs) yeah not this time long island iced tea if you're not familiar with what's in the it's already affecting me chris has had a little bit too much mine is gone if you're not familiar with what's in a long island iced tea this is a boozy drinks people three quarters ounce vodka three quarter ounce white rum three-quarter ounce silver tequila, three-quarter ounce gin, three-quarter ounce triple sec. It's a lot of alcohol. It's amazing how much not like alcohol, that much alcohol tastes. <laughs> right. It's like the suicide drink of cocktails. Did you ever have that? You know what I'm oh, talking yeah. about? Oh, yeah. If you played Little League Baseball in the 80s and 90s, you know what that is. I missed out on a lot of stuff in my childhood, but not that. <laughs> Remember, you just walk up to the concession stand and you're like, hit every button on the fountain drink. That's the Long Island iced tea. So you mix all those up with three-quarter ounce simple syrup and lemon juice, and then you top with soda or cola, Coca-Cola, I guess. Nice. All right. Well, we're not done. We're not done. We've been bantering for a while, but I'm having fun. Yeah. And I've been looking forward to this all day. Jason, (laughs) what are you going to treat us to right here? All right, so we're doing Easter Islands, and this is this is actually not the first time we've done Easter Islands. It is so not. Who knew there were so many board games about Easter Islands? Seriously, but, yeah, we talked about it with Arango. Yeah, and Chris did his own book report. I for, did for Arango and covered a little bit of it, but it felt appropriate to do a little bit of Easter Island info. You do better than I do, anyway. So, and I thought that it might be fun this time around, in keeping with tradition, no. to do some Easter Island trivia. <laughs> <laughs> and in keeping with Hidden Gems tradition, oh, this man. is just the two of us. This is payback time. It's going to have to be a competition between you and me, but I know all the answers, so you lose. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. But for the sake of our listeners, I guess we'll still go through them and you can see how you do against Chris. <laughs> He'll probably still lose, but... I'm ready. All right. You ready for this? It's I'm only ready. six questions. <laughs> so it's not too many. Okay. All that's right. hilarious. Number one, how did Easter Island get its name? The name of an explorer that discovered it. Mm, <laughs> wrong. <laughs> so it got its name because it was discovered in 1722 on Easter Sunday. 
That would have made more sense. Yeah. Should have thought about that one a little <laughs> bit longer. <laughs> All right. Number two. What country is Easter Island a territory of? Oh, my word. <laughs> oh, I regret every trivia I put you through. Um, <laughs> France. France? <laughs> You're not even in the right ocean. I don't know. <laughs> Chile. <laughs> You know, I'm just thinking like, you know, I don't know. I got to get out of my imperialism mindset, I guess. I don't know. I'm thinking, you know, what what country would have founded it? It's in Polynesia, so it's in the Pacific Ocean, not the Atlantic Ocean. That's what I was thinking, like French Polynesia, right? That's a thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. But I have to admit, I would not have gotten that right if asked that question off the top of my head. All right. Number three. Which direction do almost all of the Moai face? Oh, oh boy! It's got to have something to do with the sun. I got a fifty-fifty shot. I think I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. This is a bit tricky. But... I'm gonna go west. All right. I had to find a way to ask this question to not make it super obvious what the answer was, but it is a little misleading in the way that I asked it. <laughs> so let me ask it this way: Do all the moai on the island face the ocean, or do they face away from the ocean? I thought they faced the ocean. At least that's how they're depicted in pretty much every board game we have. They actually do not. Oh, they really? Face away from the ocean. Okay. Towards all the villages. So they're meant to protect the villages or have their eyes on the villages and protect against the ocean. Oh, okay. All right. Question number four. How many Moai exist on Easter Island? Is it 34? 156? 887? Oh, my God. Or 1,384. Can I... If C or D are correct, aliens truly exist. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to go with 34. It is 887. No! Are you serious? Yeah. How? How how much do they weigh? Did you figure that out? Well, they're different sizes. Well, sure, but I mean... I think up to like... That's actually one of the facts that I did not write down. But I think up to like 35 tons. How? We're going to get there. Okay. Just wait. (laughs) All right. Question number five. The reddish stones on top of some moai represent what? Is it traditional Polynesian hats, hair, or offerings to the gods? Well... According to the game Giants, <laughs> they're headdresses. So I'm going to go with hats, but I'm sure that's a trick. <laughs> it's actually hair. Really? It's a little unclear, to be honest. But there are certain theories that say that it's... I'm, I'm not sure if they actually know 100%. I could be making this all up. Okay. But there was at least one source that I read that said it was hair. Especially the one that's like the big cylinder with the small cylinder. Yeah, like a top knot like or something? Top knot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, I'll accept it. All right. Last question. (laughs) Question number six. What was the best video game of 2022 featuring a small fox? (laughs) (laughs) Tunic. Correct. You got one right. (laughs) Listen, I'm going to play it, man. Uh, That was well done. Got your revenge on me. Yep. All right. That's all I got. Dude, that's good, man. It's probably longer than it needed to be. That's all right. I love it. I didn't know any of that stuff, so maybe some of our listeners didn't either. Clearly, I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all we got. All right. 
40 no. minutes worth of banter. <laughs> That's all right. I'll trim it down. Don't worry. <laughs> all right. Let's get into the games. Let's do it. Easter Island is a mysterious island in the South Pacific. Its inhabitants have long since vanished without a trace, except for the giant Moai. These giant statues are so large and heavy that modern man has had a difficult time recreating them without modern tools. Tools the original inhabitants most certainly couldn't possess. This game speculates that the statues were, in fact, beam weapons created by two very powerful wizards. These wizards used the statues in a giant game with the island itself as the board. You are now one of those wizards. Awesome. Definitely unique. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's Easter Island, published in 2006 by Twilight Creations. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 6,694. Designers of this game, this was a co-design game. One of the designers is Roberto Fraga. Do you recognize that, that name? That name sounds really familiar. Yeah. Do you know what he's designed? This, I do this not. is crazy to me. I do not. Captain Sonar. Whoa. Yes. Okay. Can you believe that? Huh. Captain Sonar, Dr. Eureka, Dancing Eggs, and River Dragons to name a few of his designs, but I think most people probably know Captain, Captain Sonar. Sonar. is the only one I've heard of. But all right. This game is nothing like Captain Sonar, okay? And then the other designer is Odette Lomare, who has no other notable designs. All right, brief rule summary for Easter Island. Easter Island is a two-player abstract strategy game where the players are attempting to blow up their opponent's Moai statues by shooting them with laser beams emanating from their own Moai statue's eyes. <laughs> that wasn't in the notes. <laughs> Unbelievable. The board in Easter Island is made up of a 4x4 square grid, which consists of 25 intersections. And the reason why I emphasize that is that the player pieces do not move on the squares like in most of these games. They actually move along the intersections, so from corner to corner. Okay. In addition to the square grid and the intersections, the board is also surrounded by 20 sun token positions. And all of this directly overlays a picture of Easter Island. To get you to understand how the sun tokens look in relation to the rest of the board, if you were to look at all the horizontal and vertical lines that make up that 4x4 grid and you just extended those lines out on all five sides. 5 grid. What? No, it's not. There's five dots on each side. So there's 25 sun spaces. No, there's 20 sun spaces. There's 25. Give me the, bo give me the <laughs> box. There's five on each side, man. What? There's four, four squares, five dots. Yeah, I said that. 25 intersections. Five times four is 20. <laughs> 20 sun spaces. Okay, fine. Get out of here, Jason. <laughs> Don't ever interrupt my rules again. <laughs> it's the long island iced tea. Now, as I was saying, if you were to imagine that all of the horizontal and vertical lines of the grid were extended out, and then you had a little circular space at the end of each one of those lines, that's where the sun tokens go. That matters. So try to get that picture in your head if you can. As I mentioned earlier, the players will be positioning their Moai statues on these intersections, pointing their statues in one of the four cardinal directions. So it's also important to understand that each player's statues, of which they have seven, has directionality. 
Okay, so it matters that it's facing to the right, to the left, front, or back. Okay, it can be facing in four directions. The statues are placed in an attempt to direct light beams through one of their two ear holes, I guess, which will then get reflected at a right angle and pass through the statue's eyes, hopefully striking and destroying an opposing player's statue. If a redirected light beam hits any statue straight on, or from the backside, that statue is destroyed, regardless of who directed the beam and who owns the destroyed statue. So you can blow yourself up if you make a mistake. However, if the light beam hits the target statue from the left or the right side, the beam is again redirected through that statue, so it's not destroyed. It's redirected again at a 90 degree angle, a right angle, and through its eyes and on towards the next statue. Some important caveats. If the directed light beam does not strike a statue from the front or the back before it is directed off the board, then the last statue that the light ray passed through is destroyed. Also, if the same statue has the same ray of light passed through one ear hole and then through many redirections through the other ear hole, it is immediately destroyed. This has happened in our game. Yeah. The game ends when one player has only one statue left on the board, with the player having two or more statues remaining at that point winning the game. So that's how you win, and that's kind of how the game works. Now let's just quickly talk about your turn. On a player's turn, they will take two actions, and they will have a choice of five possible actions to choose from. First, they can place another one of their statues on one of the intersections anywhere on the board, as long as it's unoccupied. So in the setup, four are initially placed but as i mentioned you have seven in your pool so you can place up to three more on the board second you can rotate any one of your moai statues on the board 90 or 180 degrees third a player can move one statue in a straight line in any direction as long as it maintains its current facing it cannot jump over any statues during that movement along the path fourth a player may place one of their colored sun tokens face down on one of the 20 designated spots around the periphery of the island as long as it's open and available. And that's important because lastly, a player may direct a sun ray through one of their previously placed sun tokens by flipping that token face up. The light ray will then travel along straight lines beginning at this token, getting redirected by the Moai statues until it either destroys the statue or is directed off the board. Once a sun token is flipped face up to direct the sun's rays, it cannot be used again for the rest of the game. Two more important caveats, and then we're finished with the rules. One, a statue put in play on the current turn cannot be involved in directing light that turn. And a sun token cannot be placed on the board and then immediately flipped as the second action on the same turn. And that's it. That's generally how you that's, play. That's entirely how you play. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. How you play Easter Island. I hope. That made sense the way I was describing that redirecting, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more when we go through our thoughts, but that's very important to understand that if you get hit from the front of the back, you're dead. If you get hit from the side, it goes through your ear and then forward through your eyes onto the next Naturally. target, because that makes total sense, right? All right. So as I mentioned in the rules, this is an abstract game through and through, and we've been playing a few abstract games recently here in Hidden Gems HQ. Yeah. Most notably, Mixtor. We talked about Mixtor a couple of episodes ago, and that one was pretty uniformly liked amongst all of us. Yep. And when I was playing this one, I did feel like this game maybe had some passing similarities with Mixtor. 
possibly. Like I said, it's certainly an abstract game. What do you think about that? Did you get similar feels to Mixtor in this one? Any similarities or major differences? Maybe a little bit. In that you're on a square grid. <laughs> Other than that, I feel like you're thinking about different things. What this felt like to me, honestly, was like old school top-down Zelda. And you get in the dungeons and they have the puzzles, right? <laughs> like, I feel like this is like a dungeon puzzle. Yeah. Right? Where you're sliding the blocks around and the blocks have mirrors on them. And yep. you're trying yep. to use the mirrors to get the laser beam to hit the key so that you can open the door and get yep. out of the room. You know? Yep. That's what it felt like to me, which is not a bad thing. It's a cool puzzle to try sure. to figure out. I don't know if I got a ton of mixed tour vibes out of it, aside from the fact that they're both abstract and they're both on a grid. Sure. But... I can see how you could kind of see similar things like where you're trying to see what you can pull towards you. Mm-hmm. You're like trying to figure out how you can direct the light in the, in the right, right, way. right. Yeah. yeah. Certainly the central mechanisms are quite a bit different, but I think the thing that struck me about this game when we played, it was very similarly to mixed door. You can just make grievous errors in this game, like in mixed door. And I think that's true of most abstracts. I'm not saying that those are unique, I'm not saying that that is a unique feature of abstract games. I think abstract games in general share that quality, but I did feel like it was very strong in Mixtor. And I feel like that that is also a part of this game too, where you're just missing things on the board, right? You can just miss an obvious move, particularly in your initial preliminary plays of this game, as you're just getting used to the mechanisms and how it works. Now, I agree with you. Okay, go ahead. Well, I will say, I think as we played Mixtor more, we started to realize that there's a lot more ways to play defense than it initially seems like. Mm-hmm. Because you'll you'll look at the state of the board and you're like, well, there's no way that I'm not going to lose right now. But then you think about it for a second and you're like, oh, wait, I can put a flower pot in between these two things and right. that, like disturbs this turn. I felt like this was kind of the same way, if not maybe a little more obvious than Mixtor was in that you'll feel like you're stuck, but then you can like oh, I can move this statue back a step and now like mm-hmm. it completely changes the dynamic on the board. And that was what really appealed to me in this game. It felt yeah. like there was a lot of room for making clever plays. Yeah. Of like, ooh, if I slide this one back and I move this one over here or I drop a new one here, then all of a sudden everything's changed around and now I'm on the offensive and right. on the defensive. Right. And it just felt satisfying to make moves like that. I agree. Half the time I made a move and I was like, oh, crap, I didn't realize that you could do that over there. And now I'm <laughs> But that's part of the fun of it, you know. I'm really glad that you brought up that point because, you know, one thing that we mentioned in Mixtor, and we actually mentioned it in our initial plays of this game, is can you pin somebody? I think you actually used that exact word when we reviewed mm-hmm. Mixtor, is you were worried that you could never set up yourself for a win. Yeah. I will say in this game, you absolutely can. Oh, yeah. You can position your statues and your sunbeams in such a way to where you're like, I've got you. And you can't get out because you planned well. I agree. I would say that difficulty level and the ability to grok what's going on on the board. Initially, they're both confusing. Mixtor yes. And this game. But I felt like this game became easier to process what was going on on the board much faster than it did in Mixtor. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a pro. Sure. As good as Mixtor is. I liked the fact that this game was a little bit easier to start to grasp the strategic options that were yeah. available to you. I agree. Yeah, Mixtor had that weird sucking mechanism where you draw pieces to you, which was just always hard to wrap your head around. This one didn't have any weird rules like that, but I did like also, this one has a few more things to think about in your turn, which I think are all equally viable options. And I'd be interested to know your thoughts about this, but I thought it was interesting, the choice of, do I add another statue to the board? Because it seems good 
to have more statues, right? That's more angles. That's more ways I can redirect. Some more things to get blown up. Also more things to get blown up. But you can attack people more. Or do I just flood the board with rays, right? Maybe I put down a whole bunch of light rays, right? But then maybe I don't have as strong of a board presence. And then there's always, of course, the moving and the redirecting, which is always important. But I don't know. I just found that balance interesting because there were times when you had a whole bunch of rays down. I was like, gosh, where can I go? You yeah, know, that it's seems... A lot of, it's, a, it's a big threat when you do right, that. Right, right. Yeah. I found that interesting, too. It's a good trade-off. I think I was trying to generally flood the board with ray tokens because there's a threat uh, yes. on every column and every row, yeah. right? But if you do that, then you're sacrificing your ability to set up for other moves. Board and, presence, and, yeah. And everything else, right? It's a good trade-off. I agree. Anything you didn't like about Easter Island that you haven't already mentioned? Yeah, it does feel like in this game that if you do make a pretty critical error early, unlike a game like Mixtor where usually the game just ends and you lose and you rack it back up and you start over in this game, you feel like you're behind the eight ball and it is hard to make a play that can allow you to catch up unless your opponent also just errors, right? I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I mean, there are a lot of abstract games like that. Chess is like that. Your opponent makes a mistake. The game continues, right? You have to carry on. Right. It's a minor con, but I think I did like that in Mixtor where it's just like, oh, you got me. Okay, let's start over. As opposed to this one of like, oh, you got me. Now I'm going to play for 20 more minutes and probably still going to lose. And I don't know how I can improve myself. Because in this game, if you get down a statue, you fall behind. The leader is just piling on you. You feel like you're constantly playing defense and it's hard to recover, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I feel like it would be very, very difficult to set up a turn where you could zap two Moai on the same turn. I guess you could manage to zap one on a couple turns where you forced your opponent to not be able to do anything, right? But when you're already at a peace disadvantage, that's probably pretty difficult to do. It is. I think so. Yeah, I hear you on that one. Yeah, I mean, outside of that, I don't know that I have a ton of cons for this one, honestly. It's pretty straightforward. All right. Well, let's wrap it up and move on to final thoughts then. Okay. I'll kick us off. All right, go for it. This is a pretty simple one, but I enjoyed it. I think what stood out to me the most in this game was just the opportunity for that clever bouncing mirror pattern (laughs) style puzzle, right? I can't say that there's a ton of, I'm thinking four moves ahead Mm -hmm. and I know exactly what I'm going to do and I'm going to pin him in this spot, right? It's very tactical. I'm like, okay, I'm looking at the board as it is right now. How can I move something around to set stuff up and make it difficult for Chris to figure out how to do it? Right, right. But that's still a fun puzzle to to try to solve. And I don't know, there's something about those old school mirror puzzles that it just stood out to me. <laughs> like, oh man, this is what that is. So I'm going to give this one a four. Mm. I think that it has potential. I could see playing this with my son. I think he would right. really enjoy this. More so than he did Mixtor. I played Mixtor with him once and he was like, eh, okay, cool. <laughs> but he was kind of confused the whole time. And I was yeah. like, I don't blame you. It's a weird game. It, right. it is. I think he would be more interested in this one. So yeah. yeah, that's an interesting point. This one, from a rule standpoint, is more rulesy. Mm-hmm. than Mixtor, but I think it's easier to grok than Mixtor. Yeah. Which is weird, right? But, yeah, that's uh, I, true. I think that's true. Yeah, I come in a very similar place as you. I'm just going to come out and say I also give this game a four. I think it's good. This game is much better than a 6,600 yeah, 6, ranking. 000, what the heck? That's insane, right? I mean, this game is a good game. I enjoyed this. I'm actually looking forward to playing this one more. Again, similarly to when we reviewed Mixtor, I wish I had time to play this one more. This is just the curse, I guess, of reviewing abstract games is I don't think you ever can really feel like you played them enough to do them justice in a review because they're so deep, right? Yeah. I could see this one getting better, 
the more we played it and the more I understand it, but we just didn't have the time to go there because it's just a deep well. Yep. I think actually it might be fun for a backstage months down the road to revisit a game like Easter Island or Mixed to War after we played it a lot more and give our thoughts on it then because it's just that kind of game. But all I have to say, I enjoyed the setting up, finding those clever plays in the moment. I do think there's a little bit of forward plan. I think you can do things where you can set yourself up to be like, I got you, trapped you, you know, and that's always fun to do in a game like this. So, yeah, I think it's good. A few things holding it back, like I mentioned in the reviews, from being an excellent game, but really good. Like it. Check it out if you ever get a chance. Easter Island, I enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, those are our thoughts on Easter Island. Where can we get it, Jason? Ah, because we haven't done this 45 times before (laughs) where can we find it chris yeah so good news there are many copies available on noble night right now our sponsors our friends our partners at noble night games you can get a copy on there for as low as 17 dollars which for this game if you like abstracts is worth trying there are also four copies on the bgg marketplace as well if you want to pick it up at Noble Night, and we encourage you to do so, you can use our discount code HGEMS. We swear it works. <laughs> <laughs> there have been a couple of issues recently. Yeah, I, we've been working with Noble Night, and they've been uh, very patient, and we've been working it out for whatever reason. I don't know why we just had some bugs with our code, but it is working now. So if you use HGEMS, you can get 10% off your order. All right. Well, those are our thoughts on Mr. Allen. Yes. Again, not the Allen. Rapa Nui. Rapa Nui. Rapa Nui. Rapa Nui. All right, that might go on record as our least creative flavor text <laughs> session of all time. We need Cameron here, man. Oh. I feel like we've had so many moments of just random inspiration when we don't have. I, I think text. that's going to work just, out. It just failed us today. <laughs> no, no, we got it. <laughs> Put all the right. right music behind anything and it works. I'm confident. Uh, yeah. All right. Unfortunately, I can't translate German. If I could read the back of the box, we could do it. But unfortunately, this game is German only. So oh, I can translate the German. Give it to me. Are you serious? Not like it's myself, a, but I can. No, it's a lot, dude. No, give it to me. Look. There's no way. Here, let's see this. Amaze me. You're kidding me. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right, we're going to leave all that in anyways. (laughs) (laughs) All right, restart the music. Immerse yourself in a mysterious culture at the other side of the world. Rapa Nui, Easter Island. Become a powerful tribal chief and decide which important person to strengthen your village next. Lumberjack, priest, or hunters and gatherers? Or would you rather build one of the imposing and particularly valuable stone statues? (laughs) Is that it? Yeah. Well done. Rapa Nui. (laughs) (laughs) How did you... Is that Google Translate? Yeah. Wow. You take a picture on your phone. And then you click translate, and it translates it in place. Unbelievable. Yeah. The world's just changed so much. I'm not (laughs) keeping up, Jason. (laughs) I'm like my parents. That's crazy. All right. Tell us about Rapa Nui. Rapa Nui, published in 
2011, also in 2017 as the game Bali. Yes. Published. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> You're right over there? <laughs> <laughs> had a little little mid hiccup there. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Swear he's only had one LIT. <laughs> All right. Published by Cosmos, designed by Klaus Jurgen Reed, and currently ranked on BGG three thousand three hundred and twenty two. That's the Carcassonne designer, by the way. Ah, yeah. I don't know my designers as well as you yeah. do, man. Come on, man. Keep that's that's an easy one. All right. In Rapa Nui, players represent tribal chiefs attempting to gain the most glory for their tribes by erecting moai, consulting priests, and collecting the most valuable offering cards. All players start with four cards, a lumberjack, which is placed in front of them, and a random assortment of three out of four different types of hunter-gatherer cards, which are kept in the player's hand. There are four stacks of cards placed in the center of the table, each one representing a type of offering that can be collected. Fish, mulberries, sweet potatoes, and grain. And there are 25 of each of these. Finally, four columns of four cards are drawn and placed in the center of the table to form a tableau. So each column has four cards. They're kind of stacked on top of each other, but fanned out so that you can see each of the cards. A player's turn is very simple. At the beginning of their turn, a player can optionally purchase an offering card using wood. The normal cost of these cards is five wood, but for each hunter-gatherer card in front of the player that matches that type of offering, there's a discount of one wood off the cost. Then the player is going to play a card from their hand to the table in front of them. And generally there's no cost to do this and usually it also has no effect immediately. So why are you doing this? So after a player plays a card in front of them, they will then take the topmost card from one of the four columns in the tableau in the center of the table that was laid out. And based on what card is taken, a scoring is going to occur based on the card that was just revealed. So the card yeah. underneath the card you just took will trigger a scoring based on what type of card that is. Yep. So there are four types of cards in the game. There are lumberjacks, there are hunter-gatherers of four different types, there are priests, and there are moai. So I'm just going to go through each type and explain what happens when they're scored. When a lumberjack is scored, all players gain as many wood as they have lumberjack cards played in front of them. The player with the most lumberjacks receives a bonus, extra one wood. So that means that playing lumberjack cards in front of you, remember I said it doesn't do anything to play a card in front of you, but it does enable you to increase your wood income when wood is scored in the future. Hunter-gatherers work much in the same way. Every player who has at least one of the hunter-gatherer card revealed or scored receives one offering card of that type. The player with the most hunter-gatherers of that type receives an extra card. And then remember, also these hunter-gatherers give you a discount off of the cost of purchasing that type of offering card at the beginning of your turn. Priests each player gains as many victory points as they have priests again the player with the most priests receives an extra victory point so this is so playing priest cards is a way to increase your victory point income and then finally the moai cards so each player who has a moai card in front of them gains either one wood or one victory point for each moai that they have again the player with the most moai receives an extra one wood or one victory point 
The exception with Moais is that Moais are also worth four victory points at the end of the game. However, they cost seven wood to mm-hmm. build. Also, Moais are the only card that when played in front of you on your turn actually causes something to happen in the game. Yes. This is very important. Very important. So when a Moai is placed on the table by a player, a sacrifice occurs. So each player, when this happens, chooses one offering card from their hand to place into the center of the table. And they do this face down. And this is one at a time, starting with the player to the left of the player who triggered the offering. Everybody places a card face down of their choice. Then when it comes back to the player who triggered it, they play. You said that backwards. I did say that backwards. Everybody plays their card face up. Yes. Sorry, I said that backwards. (laughs) Everyone plays their card face up. Very important. When it comes back to the player who triggered the offering, they play a card face down. And then they also get to choose a card from the bank of cards that's available. Any card they want and play that card face up. So why are we playing all these cards in the center of the table? Well, there's actually a market economy kind of stock type Mm -hmm. deal going on with this. So at the end of the game, whichever type of offering has the most cards in the center of the table in this pile when they're all revealed, these cards will be worth three points each for every card that each player has left in their hand at the end of the game. (laughs) That wasn't committed or sacrificed, yeah. Right. The second most plentiful type is worth two points for each card. And third, worth one point each, and the least plentiful type of card in that pile is worth nothing. And that's pretty much everything. The game ends when the stack of cards that's used to refill the central tableau runs out. The sacrifice cards are scored as I just described. Players may have victory point tokens that they've collected throughout the game from priests and whatnot. The moai are worth four victory points each, and leftover wood scores some pity points. <laughs> Five wood for a point. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. So I think the most unique aspect of this game is that market economy that's going on. So everyone is trying to throw cards into the central pile to make their type of sacrifice card worth the most at the end of the game. Because that's the the primary scoring, right? Yeah, you can score four points using Moai, which is not a terrible amount. but And pre-score. I mean, there's certainly more scoring. If you you emphasize those. You, You can't neglect it, though. Right. The sacrifice cards, yeah. So what did you think about this? It's definitely a unique way to do it. Yes. We can get into kind of why that is, but yeah, what did you think about it? Yeah, I think this is a great place to start for this game because as we just mentioned, you can't ignore the sacrifice cards. Yeah. They are too important to scoring to just totally disregard them. That's not to say that there are not other scoring opportunities in the game that we'll talk about later, but you have to be paying attention to this. And this mechanism, while incredibly simple, in my opinion, is incredibly interesting. In order to make something valuable, you or at least some people at the table have to give up that thing in order to make it valuable. Exactly. (laughs) Which is such a conundrum and an interesting puzzle of, I might have a lot of fish, I want these fish to be valuable because I have a lot of them in my hand. But if I never commit them to sacrifice, it's likely that they won't be valuable because I'm not putting them in the center, right? Yep. And that's all there is to it. I mean, what else is there to say? It's so simple. (laughs) But it's also fascinating because you have to be paying attention, right? Because the other way to benefit from that is, okay, I see Chris is throwing a lot of fish in the center. He's trying to make fish valuable. I have fish. 
Maybe I just hang on to my fish right. and let Chris do the work to make the fish valuable, and I just hold on to mine. Sure. And maybe throw a pity fish in there to help out. Yeah. But, yeah. And I agree with you, and, and that's part of the strategy, right, is paying attention to what people are throwing in. But the counter to that is also if I'm not throwing fish in, I'm throwing something else in, right? Yeah. So I need to be paying attention to that too. Am uh, yeah, because you in, have to throw something in. Yeah, because you have to throw something in. So by not throwing in fish, am I – accidentally or inadvertently contributing to something that might overtake me later because I was trying to be greedy, (laughs) right? And score as much points as I can off this thing that I think is going to be the most or maybe the second most prevalent thing in the stack. Such a cool mechanism. Really neat. Yeah. That combined with the engine building aspect that's going on throughout the game, because you're playing a card each round and you're basically building an engine, right? Mm -hmm. You're giving yourself discounts off of purchasing cards. You're increasing your wood income. You're increasing your point income. You're increasing your sacrifice card income. I found it very tricky to figure out how to do that well. Yeah, it's tricky. Because what was one of the coolest puzzles to me is that you're always looking at that central tableau, right? Because what you place down in front of you doesn't mean anything. Until mm-hmm. it's actually triggered Scored. as a scoring. Yes. And that only happens based on what's in those columns, right? And yeah. so all the cards are eventually going to come out. Well, that's not even true because the game ends when one of the columns can't be refilled. So not all the cards are going to be scored. So you're looking at all those cards and you're like, okay, well, in that column, if somebody takes that card, it's going to score wood. And if somebody takes that card, it's going to score priests. And so you're looking at all that and trying to figure out, all right, well, I see a lot of hunter-gatherer cards that are fish on the board right now, so maybe I invest in fish so that mm-hmm. like when those come up and get scored, I actually get some fish out of it, right? Yeah. But if you try to do that and you're too late, then you've just invested a whole bunch of stuff, and now all those cards are out of the deck, and they're never going to get scored again. <laughs> right. And so you're always trying to like figure out how to get in on things before they become scored. Yes. So that you're benefiting the most off of like what other people are doing on their turns. Yeah. I found that to be interesting. I totally agree with you. It's one thing to think about, oh, I'm going to take this card because it is probably something I'm working towards or will be useful to me in the future. But there were many times where I was like, oh, this is the card I'm going to take. And then I look at what I'm revealing and I'm like, well, do I want to take this card now? You know what I mean? It gives you Mm -hmm. just another little layer of decision making because you have to think about what you're triggering, right? Maybe I don't want to trigger that, or maybe I don't want that to trigger yet, right? Or maybe I don't want to start pulling cards off this column, digging down to a card that I don't want to occur yet, right? So Mm -hmm. there are things to be thinking about other than I'm taking this card because I think it's what I need. What am I revealing, right? Again, very simple, but gives some interesting decisions there. Yeah, there's a little rule, too, that I didn't mention in my walkthrough of the rules, but with hunter-gatherer cards specifically... This is the only card you can do this with. You can play more than one card on your turn if you have the same type. And you have yeah. to pay to do it, so it's expensive. But this game is all about efficiency. Yes. And so you're getting multiple cards down, increasing that discount, potentially overtaking the lead on a number mm-hmm. of those cards. So you're getting the bonus extra card on that type. I thought that was a, a cool little extra wrinkle. Yeah, and I thought another interesting wrinkle to that too, I'm glad you mentioned this, is grabbing a whole bunch of one type of hunter or gatherer, or maybe just two. Let's just say you had the majority. I'm not saying that's not necessarily a good thing, but you do have to be careful in this game about grabbing the majority and one type of sacrifice card if nobody else is invested in it. Yeah. Because you might be pulling in yams or whatever, hand over fist, and you're like, this is great, I've got a ton of yams. But if everybody else at the table knows you've got a ton of yams, they're going to help you 
zero, right? Yep. And contributing those to the center of the table because mm-hmm. that would just be helping you, right? right. So if you kind of corner the market on a resource, you might actually be hurting yourself because you're going to have to be putting a lot of those cards in the center to make them worth anything because your opponents are not going to do it unless they're just not paying attention. Yeah. Because they know that it's just going to be helping you, right? Right. Very interesting. Yeah. All right. We've talked about a lot of good things. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you didn't like about this game? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. So I'll mention this con with maybe another little pro that I was going to mention. I would say that I, I do feel like by way of the priests and the lumberjacks and the hunters and gatherers, there's like three main paths you can go down to score points. And I think that there are multiple paths to victory, so to speak. I'm not saying that they're immense, but there are different ways you can go about trying to win this game is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But having said all of that, this deck consists of lumberjacks, priests, hunters and gatherers, and Moai cards. Yep. It's not a super diverse deck. It's not incredibly varied. And so maybe the game could get a little bit samey feeling over time just because there's not a lot of differing cards in the deck. Now, yeah. the, the way the tableau is set up every game is varied, and that will change your strategy depending on how cards are pulled out. But I could see that might be an issue. Right. Yeah. The only thing that really stood out to me was I think in at least two of the games that we played, the counts of cards in the deck were tied. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. And it was, I understand why this can happen, right? Because, I mean, the most of a type that's probably going to be in there is like six or seven cards, right? Unless somebody's just really hammering a type. Mm-hmm. And so when that's your range, you're likely to get ties. But the way the ties are scored is kind of strange. Yeah, I, admit, I would like, agree with like that. Like they both score the same amount of points. They're kind of friendly seems ties. to kind of neuter the range of point scoring a little mm-hmm. bit. It's like, oh, well, everybody gets the same number of points. Great. Then it comes down to just who collected more. The most, right. right? And so that felt a little off to me. Not enough to really turn me off to it, but that happening often was just sort of strange. Yeah, and I think I might know why that is. So in those games, I think you only played this at four players. Mm-hmm. Did have the opportunity to play this at three players as well. And I think, actually, I'm glad that I did because I think this game is a three-player game. Ah. Because in a three-player versus a four-player game, the number of cards in the deck does not change. So, obviously, in a four-player game, the same number of cards amongst more people, the game is just going to move a lot faster. Yep. And so... You're not going to have as much time to get your engine built up. There's not going to be as much action happening on the sacrifice pile because the game's just going to end faster, right? The four-player game introduces some issues. It wasn't a terrible experience, but I can tell you that it's much better at three, and I think that that helps alleviate some of those problems. But I agree with you that I do wish the ties had a little bit more teeth to them, I guess, is what you're saying. I, I see that. That's a good point. I didn't get a chance to play this at three, but I can see how that could probably make it more interesting. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, final thoughts, Tom? Yeah, let's do it. I'm ready. All right. Go for it. So for me, this game, it absolutely exemplifies what it means to be a classic, old, dry, dusty Euro game. (laughs) I mean, this game is it. If you were to look up dry, dusty Euro in the dictionary, this game would be there. It would have a picture of this game. And I love it. I love it. I love this game. This game, in a lot of ways, is so simple, a child can understand it. Specifically, talking about the sacrifice cards, right? I'm not saying a child could play it well, 
Yeah. I'm saying a child could understand it, right? They're holding those cards and they're like, oh, you see these cards? You want those to be valuable. You have to have the most of that kind of card in the center there. And they're like, oh, okay. And then they put one in there and then they quickly realize, but I'm giving them away, right? Yep. And that's the rub in this game, right? And it's so great. It's trying to figure out how to navigate that conundrum. How do I get the cards that I want to be in the center there sacrificed to make the cards I'm having my hand valuable? That, to me, was just the centerpiece of this game. I so enjoyed that. All the other things that we talked about were also pros as well, but that whole mechanism of that market manipulation, I think, as old as it is, it's just still good. It's pure. You know what I mean? It just felt clean. You know what I mean? It's hard to explain. You just know it when you play it. For me, I think this game is excellent. I could go on about it, but I'm not going to. I'm going to give this game a five. I really, really like this game, and I foresee myself playing it a lot more, even though maybe I have some concerns about the legs of it long term. That's not manifesting itself yet. So I look forward to playing it more. Cool. Yeah, I would echo a lot of your thoughts. This game surprised me. I did not expect it to be. Yeah, I did too. You know, when I looked at it, you look at the box, it's just a deck of cards. Looks lame. <laughs> You're like, what is this? <laughs> but like you said, that market manipulation mechanism is fascinating. Yeah. I don't know that I've played a game that uses that mechanism where you are having to spend the thing you're trying to collect in order to manipulate it. Right. right. There are lots of games where it's like different tracks and you're spending money or you're spending something else or your turns to manipulate the tracks to try to control things that you're collecting right. some other way through five different action paths or some something. sort of exchange yeah. yeah yeah and i've seen that before but I, I don't think i've ever seen something with that tension of but i have to give away the thing that i'm trying to collect in order to make it valuable and it hurts every time because you're like i want to hold on to this card but can i risk it you know yeah, yeah. so that, that was really cool i think for me too the engine building part of it was really interesting yeah. because it's not just bump my engine in this area bump my engine in that area you're trying to bump your engine but you're trying to do it at the right time yep. and you're trying to not help your opponent how to control what's being scored yep. so that other people are not benefiting off the extra bonuses and things right. at the right times so right yeah those two things combined made it really good in my opinion i gave this game a four i'm curious about the three-player game yeah, yeah. You I, need I think to do i want to play it at three players i think that could push it up to a five yeah for me. i think it would um, but i gave it a four just because some of that tie scoring at the end and i mean it is super dry i mean let's be honest <laughs> no right? doubt like it's super dry. You don't feel like a tribal chief on Easter Island <laughs> sitting in the sun. You know, no, it's just cards yeah. and market manipulation. Yeah. Right? But all of that put together makes a really crunchy, fun puzzle to solve. Totally so, agree. Solid four could be a five with some three player games. I, I would be willing to bet money that if you played it at three, you would bump it. Cool. Yeah. All right. Where can we find it? Yeah. So if you want Rapa Nui. You, there are no copies at no on Noble Knight. There are 11 copies on the BGG Marketplace. However, as Jason mentioned, this game somewhat recently got reprinted slash re-implemented as Bali. Did they change it all around and add all kinds of extra rules? They did not, thankfully. So it's nearly, I, from what I understand, pretty much the same game. There are a couple of variants added to the rules, I think, to maybe add some things to it to add upon what's already there. But base game, pretty much the same thing. And that is readily available on Noble Knight and on BGG. So if you want to pick it up there, pick it up on Noble Knight again. Our code is HGEMS. We'd appreciate it. It's a good one, folks, I think. Still holds up all these years later. All right. Those are our thoughts on 
Rapa Nui. Rapa Nui. Rapa Nui. The monumental statues of Easter Island, known as Moais, are one of the most fascinating exploits attributed to mankind. How did a handful of sculptors, tucked away on a minuscule island, ever manage such a feat? Isolated from the rest of the world, they built more than 800 statues. Oh crap! It's on the box. It's on Chris. the box. Oh no! Each weighing several tons—35 tons to be exact with certain measuring nearly 10 meters tall. Cooperation between the tribes, innovative use of wood, and their earnest hard work are certainly part of the explanation of their incredible feat. These stone giants are one of the rare vestiges of a highly refined civilization, the Rapa Nui, who prospered for more than a millennium in peace and tranquility. Now it's your turn to relive their inspiring adventure as builders of the Moais. Nice. It's exciting. If you'd read that beforehand, you'd have done a lot <laughs> better I would have gotten two quiz. questions right. Oh, man. All right. I'm fired up. Giants. Published in 2008 by Matago and Asmodee. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 1,497. Designer of this game is Fabrice Besson. This is his only design. Wow. Yeah. I heard about this game. Well... Let me back up. I've known about this game for a long time. This game has been on my shelf for years, and I had not played it. Bought this game at a local board game store because I'd heard good things about it from Tom Vassell. Although I've not heard Tom talk about this game in years. Well, until the reprint a few years ago. We'll talk about that at the end of the review. But, dun, dun, dun. yeah, he hasn't talked about it very much. However, one of our listeners and one of our buddies, Raleigh Local here, Mike Hughes of One Bookcase recommended that we review this game so a shout out to mike and also while we're on the topic gotta undo some past mistakes mike also recommended kupfer kessel company and i forgot to give him credit for that gem of a game ah that was a good one <laughs> that was a good one so thanks mike for that and also while we're on the topic chris battles our friend texted me the other day and gave me a hard time because i forgot to give him a <laughs> shout out for ghost of christmas <laughs> <laughs> he actually introduced that game to us when it was called time palatrix so, Chris Battles, thank you for that recommendation. I told him I would make it right. Okay. All is forgiven. Man. All is forgiven. Brief rule summary for Giants. Brief. Yeah, let's see this. Okay. All right, so listen. <laughs> this is going to be maybe a little longer than usual, but I think this is worth going through. I still kept it as brief as possible, but I think these things are worth talking about. Okay. In Giants... The players are all striving to construct the most valuable Moai statues around the periphery of Easter Island using their workers, and in some cases their opponent's workers, to accomplish this goal. The scoring in Giants is simple. The game board shows Easter Island, which is overlaid by numerous hexes. The hexes found at the periphery of the island contain platforms where Moai can be erected, and each platform will award a varying number of victory points if a player is able to get a Moai statue onto that platform. So let me just quickly give you some examples. So let's say a platform is worth five points for Moai statues. It's important to understand in this game that there are three strengths of statue, level one, level two, and level three. 
If you get a level one statue onto a five value platform, that is worth five points at the end of the game. If you get a level three statue on that same platform, that is worth three times five or 15 points at the end of the game. In addition to that, if you can cap that statue with a headdress, it will be worth or a, hair or hair <laughs> top knot bun. It will also be worth a varying number of points on top of that, whatever is listed on that platform. Now let's talk about the anatomy of a round. Each round consists of five phases. In the first phase, the players will roll dice, which will randomly determine how many and what strength of Moai are available for purchase in this round's auction. In phase two, the auction occurs, and it is important to understand that this is a two-fisted blind bid auction. Don't go anywhere. (laughs) Don't turn off the podcast. All right, in one fist... The players will choose to bid a number of their tribal markers, more on these later, so important, which will determine the turn order for that round of bidding. In the other fist, the player will bid a number of their workers in order to purchase the different valued moai. So let me explain. Again, the tribal markers, the number that you bid, that's how strong your bid is or where you're falling turn order. So if you bid the most tribal markers, you'll get first choice of what is up for auction. However, you can't just take whatever you want from the available statues. You have to bid the appropriate strength. So if I want a three-value statue, I have to have at least three workers that I also commit during the auction to take that statue, if it's even still available, because somebody who maybe bid more tribal markers than me might have grabbed it before me. More on this later. Nothing to think about in that auction. Oh, my gosh. Okay. On top of that, It is critically important to understand that everything that you use to bid with in phase two, everything I just explained, the travel markers and the workers will be placed in front of your player screen and will not be available to be used during the upcoming phase three, that round. Everything you bid with is gone for the worker placement part of that round. Very important. During phase three or the worker placement, the players will begin to place workers out onto the hexes of the board in turn order in order to create a network or a track along which they will transport their acquired moai from the quarry spot on the board towards a platform around the periphery of the island. So it's important to understand also that, just to reiterate, every statue begins at one spot on the board, the quarry, and they will emanate out from the quarry all across the island. The quarry is on one side of the island. The further you move away from the quarry, the more valuable the platforms become, but the farther they have to travel through those networks to score those points. And the headdresses kind of work in the opposite direction. Very important to understand. In addition to that, it should also be noted that the two and the three strength moai are much more difficult to move than a one strength moai. To move a one strength moai, you just have to have one worker in each hex that you move it along, whether you own it or not. You can use your opponents. If you do, you pay them a point. But the two strength requires two workers or a worker and a wood. Okay, And the three strength statues or moai require three workers or maybe a worker and two wood. So they're much more difficult to move, but they're more valuable. In addition, there are also four special locations on the board where if you place your priest, which is a specialized type of worker there, he's a one strength worker, but you can also do a special action. This includes getting more tribal markers, getting a headdress, 
getting another worker, things like that. A chief, when placed on one of these special spaces, can also perform those same actions if he spends two Orongo half tablets from in front of their screen. So what is an Orongo half tablet? <laughs> well, if you place one of your unused tribal markers in front of your screen, you get half a tablet. If you have two half tablets, you can spin them to let your chief act as a priest for that round. Almost done. <laughs> During phase four, the players will then, in turn order, move all of their Moai statues along the worker networks in the direction of their desired platforms. If a player cannot get a statue onto a platform, they must leave it where it ended its movement on the board. They must then mark the statue again with an unused tribal marker to denote ownership. Otherwise, they are at risk of that statue being claimed by one of the other players. Once a player has placed their seventh statue, the game will then end and players will tally points with the most points winning the game. <laughs> that's generally how you play giants very generally yeah it, there's even more to it we'll talk about it when we talk about our points i think i'm hoping we can flesh out the rules because there is a lot to think about here but i will say i don't think this game is very complicated every yeah. time i've taught this game to people they're like wow this is a lot and by the end of the first round they got it yep it's just you have to play it okay so we'll try our best to explain it all right so many places to begin here <laughs> But I think we'll just start from the top. So as I mentioned at the very beginning of the rules explanation, in order to acquire the statues that you are going to then disperse throughout the island, you have to win them by way of an auction, a blind bid auction. How did you feel about this part of the game? Yeah, so I know blind bids get a bad rap, and there are a lot of abuses of blind bids in games yeah. that just make them complete luck fests. Or incredibly punishing. Yep. And when we talk about cons, we can circle back to this because it's still a blind bid and it's still mm -hmm, there. Mm -hmm. But I think there is so much interesting stuff going on in this blind bid. The double blind bid portion of it just makes the decisions in this auction agonizing. Very much so. That combined with the fact that everything you spend, you don't get back. For That's that the round. key. Yeah. Because you're like, well, man, I really need a statue this round. I really want a big one because it's worth a lot of points, or maybe you don't, but you really need a statue, and there's not guaranteed to be enough statues for everybody to get one. Yes. So you're like, oh, man, I, I probably need to spend a couple markers, but if I spend these markers, then I don't have them for other things, and we'll get into what those other things are you might mm -hmm. need them for in a second. Yeah, just agonizing decisions over that. I found that super interesting to try to figure out. Yeah, I totally agree. The game, it incentivizes you to be aggressive in the auction, but it also incentivizes you not to be aggressive in the auction, which sounds like a weird statement, but it's a true one, right? Yeah. You want to try to get statues cheaply in the auction so you can save as much material as possible, those tribal markers and your workers, to accomplish what you need to accomplish on the board. But if you're too stingy, it is very possible, and in some cases likely, that you will commit something in the auction and walk away empty-handed. Yep. And that's what people tend to hate about blind bids is blind bidding, committing something, and then one person getting the goods and everybody else losing their bid. That sucks. Mm -hmm. That can happen in this game, but really it will only happen if you're being cheap right, or stingy. If you try to get away with it to where you're trying to pay a little bit, you could walk away from that auction empty-handed. If you bid aggressively, you likely won't, but then you'll be hurting in the next round when you need that stuff to do what you need to do. Tension all over the place. Again, yep. this is just hitting me in the right spot, right? So interesting, I think. 
Yeah, because everything that you choose to spend is critical. Yep. Every worker that you choose to put in your hand for that bid, you're like, oh, I just know that I'm going to be like one worker short of like what I need. <laughs> yeah. But what's fascinating about this game is the shared use of workers on the board, at least for the transportation yeah. aspect of things. Sometimes you can afford to spend workers in the auction if you know or if you have a pretty good hunch that other people are going to be trying to get their statues in the general direction that you're trying to go. Because if you know that, then you know that, okay, well, I know Chris and Bill are probably going to put at least one or two workers over on this side where I'm trying to go. That reduces the count of workers that I need to put out there. Yep. If I can manage to delay long enough to do that. And that's another thing. We oh, we got to talk about that. Yeah. But it's just a fascinating decision to be like, okay, well, I really want to get this statue. I need to commit this amount, I think, but can I afford to do that and still get to where I need to get to based yes. on what I think other people are about to do on the board? And that, that was cool to think about. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned, there's so many things to talk about this game, but we should transition. I'm glad you mentioned the network. It still may not be clear to you, the listener, what we're talking about here. So I, I might try to frame it just quickly in another way. Maybe this might help you. When I teach this game, I describe it as like a train game. Mm-hmm. almost like a cube rails game right yep. where people are placing workers in hexes or you can think of them as like a cube and that's like a piece of track but that cube or that worker can be used by everybody but if yep. you use that worker or workers if you're trying to transport the bigger statues anytime you use your opponent's workers they get a point right, right? but it might be worth it to you and in some cases well not in some cases in most cases you need them I think it's essential to get to where you want to go. But what's also so interesting about this, and you've kind of hit on a little bit, I think we should go there because I think it's so interesting, is how you can use other people to get generally where you want to go and then saving your workers to get exactly where you want to go. So what I mean by that is typically what happens is this blob of track or workers kind of spreads through the middle of the island and it begins to branch out towards the periphery, right? If you're spending all of your workers in the middle to move across the island, everybody's going to use your people to travel, and then they're going to spread out and get where they want to get to. Yep. So how do you avoid that, or how do you manipulate that? Where there's this really interesting action in the game (laughs) where you can spend a tribal marker. Now remember, tribal markers are what you spend in the auction to determine where you fall in turn order to select what kind of statue you want. So they're very important there. Yep. But if you held any back, you can take one from behind your screen and put it in front of your screen. As your action. As your action. And you take an Orongo half tablet that's helpful for your chief. But what's even more helpful is it's a delay. It's a no-op action. It's a no-op action. It's like I'm pausing to see what other people are going to do and where they're going to place their workers or lay their track so that they can do that work for me and then I can branch off and get where I need to go when it comes time to place my workers. So good. Yeah. So good. For sure. And in addition to that, they have one more very important use. When you're transporting your statue. Ah, yes. This is very important. (laughs) This is so important. If you're not able to get it to your platform, which if you're moving those big heavy ones and you're trying to get it way across the island to score a lot of points, which is a viable strategy, it's likely you're not going to make it there for a few rounds. You have to mark it with a tribal marker, which if you don't, it will get stolen from you by an opponent, which you can't let that happen. This is like steam or age of steam or railways where you start a track and you don't finish it. It 
like you retain control of it for a round, but if you don't extend it, <laughs> yep. then it, you lose it. You've got a hanger, basically. Yeah, it's, it's that type of thing. But what's interesting about it, and the point I want to make is, when you mark it with a tribal marker, that tribal marker is hung up on the board. Yep. And you don't have it until you get it to where it needs to go. It's serving a very important purpose. But the point I'm making here is, they mark statues you control. They're used in the auction. They're also used to delay, to get information. And all of these things are equally important, and you're balancing that. Ugh. So good. Yeah. Well, while we're on the topic of this network building, yeah. the other thing that's fascinating about this is you're obviously leeching off of other people's workers, and yep. you, you kind of have to. There's, there's no avoiding it. But at the same time, every time you do that, you're feeding your opponent's points. You are. <laughs> and so seems so appealing at the beginning of the game you're like oh man i'm gonna get that three size statue and i'm gonna move that thing i don't care how long it takes i'm gonna move it across the board and i'm gonna drop it on that huge platform over there and get 30 <laughs> points but once you play it for a while you start thinking okay yeah but how many points am i gonna have to give away to my opponents <laughs> yeah. to make that happen and how much time is it gonna take me to get right. that thing across the board and so it's this fascinating decision of I can be super efficient and I can move my statues all over the place over the board super fast if I use everybody else's workers. Mm -hmm. But I may have just scored eight points off this statue, but how many points did I just give away? Right. What was my net gain? Yeah. By transporting it across the board using everybody else's workers. And that is a cool problem to solve too. Totally agree. Yeah. And while we're on the topic of transporting things across the board to that very valuable platform across the way, I think we should mention. So I very briefly in the rules <laughs> mentioned the special actions and mm -hmm. i want to emphasize that they are important there's just so many things to talk about in this game but your chief with two orango tablets or your priest can execute a special move one of them is getting more tribal markers if they go in that hex you can get another tribal marker that's great those are valuable mm -hmm. but another hex gives you another worker yep i can increase my network that's helpful one hex gives me wood that helps me move these big heavy three value statues across the board and then one thing I didn't mention in the rules is reserving. Yes, this is very important. <laughs> yeah. So you can place one of those two characters in front of a platform and you can reserve it for yourself and nobody else can go there but you. And in a lot of ways, this seems like such a waste of an action because there's so many better things you could be doing on your turn. Yep. But there's danger and tension there because... As Jason you, found out, yeah, it can if, be very important. It happened to a few people. If you don't reserve... You could find yourself feeling a lot of regret, you know, that that spot you were trying to get to, you can't get to anymore. Yes, I transported a level three statue, which remember, this takes a lot of effort, all the way across the board. For like a 30-point score. Just to have Eric and Chris team up and decide that they were going to find a way to reserve it for themselves. <laughs> the last two spots that were over there, so that I had no place to put it and had to reverse and transport it the entire way back across the board to a different <laughs> spot, which I don't even think I even made it before the game ended. <laughs> that was a sad day. Yeah. And don't do that. Yeah, and that could be mean, but the point I'm making is all of those special actions, again, are just equally viable and equally important to consider at the right time, which just adds to that difficult decision making in this game yeah i think one of the things that this game does so well is creating these dichotomies these trade-offs of do you do this or do you do this which is better i don't know how much effort do you put into building up your engine and collecting more tribal markers and more workers versus just trying to move stuff around the board quickly how much effort do you put behind trying to move things far away versus just getting mm -hmm. like out on the board quickly and yep. ending the game 
how much do you go for the high scoring hat point spaces yep. versus the high scoring hair point spaces <laughs> versus the high scoring moai point spaces do you go for the big statues? Do you go yep. for the small statues that are easier to move? There's so many. Do I reserve a spot? Do I not reserve a spot? Yeah. Like, to you know, save that extra action. There's so many trade-offs to think about. And I think a lot of that has to do with observing how the network is developing. There have been many times around I had an idea of what I was going to do, and then I started to see how people were placing out their workers in the wood yep. that helps transport things. And I'm like, well, shoot. Now maybe I could get this thing over there and score those points. Or I wasn't planning on transporting a headdress, but now the way the network is growing, I'm like, gosh, I could get a headdress all the way across the board right now, right? With some clever placements. And so you're constantly evaluating the board and what you're going to do based on how everybody is expanding their networks, which is super cool. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, that was a lot, I feel like. (laughs) Yeah. But there's a lot to talk about here. Do you have any other positives before we move on to some of the negatives i could go on on other stuff but we should probably talk about cons yeah probably i didn't have a ton the one thing that stood out to me goes back to the blind bid and specifically around one of the rules that i don't think you mentioned Mm -hmm. but can be very important which is that punishing i have an idea what you're gonna say yeah if the it's a hard thing to explain but basically If the blind bid works out in such a way that not enough people are able to take statues, usually because they're high value statues and they didn't bid enough workers to be able to afford them. Yep. It can end up that the same player, if they bid enough workers, could get more than one statue. Mm -hmm. If it comes all the way back around you and there's still some left and you still have enough workers in your hand to purchase it, you can get another one. Yeah. And we saw this happen a couple times. Yeah. It's, a, it's a gutsy move. It is. It's, I do not see this as a con at all. It's <laughs> it's very difficult to, decision to make to say, yeah. oh, I'm going to commit this many workers yeah. in the hopes that this works out and mm-hmm. I can grab this, right? I love that portion of it. What I didn't love quite so much is that it can happen that based on turn order, it just ends up, like, I think most of the times we saw that happen, somebody gets two statues a couple people are getting nothing. Yeah, because they and didn't bid enough. And that's a huge thing. But it also, I don't know. That's a, like a, it's a big swing. Yeah, but that's, of, but that's their fault. It is to a degree, but again, it's a blind bid, right? You don't know what's happening, so it can feel just like you said in the blind bid of like, well, I committed something, and then just because somebody else bid a little bit more, I've committed all this stuff and I've just lost everything. It's that same feeling, right? Yes, it's a gutsy move to go for that, and you should be rewarded for high risk, high reward. But at the same time, the people on the other side of that are like, well, crap. Now this person has a huge advantage because they, right. they have two statues. I got nothing out of it. Even though I tried to bid something reasonable and get something, I end up with nothing now just because of the way the turn order stuff works out. right? But but I think they find themselves in that position because they were being weak in their bid. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, it's true. I, I think this is a good point. We should sit here for a minute. I'm, I'm going to try to give an example because I, I think you're making a good point And it may not be clear what we're talking about. So let's say there are three statues for auction. A one value, a one value, and a two value. Okay. If I go for broke and I bid a lot of tribal markers and I bid three workers, and let's say Jason bids one worker and Cameron bids one worker, but Cameron fell last in turn order because he was being cheap with his tribal markers. He bid like one and we bid much more. If I take the one statue and then Jason takes the other one statue, all that Cameron could take would be one statues, but there are none left. Yep. So now he gets nothing. 
And I would also take the two statue because I committed three workers, right? Yep. Well, how could Cameron have avoided that? Well, bid higher on his tribal markers or bid more workers, right? He could have bid two workers, right? Yep. So the point I'm making is, yeah, that sucks when that happens, but it usually happens because you thought you could get by with a weak bid, right? So you always have to be worried about that in this game. Yeah, that's true. Not disagreeing with you necessarily. I'm just, yeah, it's. I not, liked that part of the it's game. It's not personally. a huge con. Yeah. It's just if people are going to have a hard time with the blind bid, that's where it's going to come in. It right? can sting, for sure. Yeah. The only other thing I would mention are the components are kind of a miss here. The wood is super tiny. Oh, my like, gosh. Round logs that roll all over the place. Rolling all over the place. The statues, the headdresses don't fit on top of the statues. The tribal markers are supposed to go on top of the statues. They don't fit either. Component-wise, this was annoying, but this is a minor, minor quibble in my opinion. All right, ready to wrap it up? Let's do it. We've been going on and on. Yep. All right. Anytime I start writing out my notes for a game and I am getting to the point where I'm like, have I written down too much stuff? Like, <laughs> this might be this might yeah. be too many points to talk about. We yeah. might run out of time. That's a good sign to me. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to say this game is perfect. We've already talked about a couple things that make it a little unwieldy. It is a bit difficult to wrap your mind around at first. Mm-hmm. But like Chris said, once you've played a round of it, it's very intuitive as mm-hmm. what you're doing. For a game as complex as this, we and we didn't even talk about this in the review, this is one of the most thematic yeah. worker placement, route building type games I've ever seen. I agree. Right? Everything makes sense in this game. It does, and which it, is why it's easy to learn. Go through yeah. the, if you go through the notes I did on Easter Island, everything starts in the quarry, which is that's where the quarry was on Easter Island, and everything's moving to the sea, and yep. they were using the logs, and you're using other people's workers and teaming up with tribes and stuff like it's very thematic. Yep. But there's just so many good trade-offs, so many good things to think about in this game. I really struggled with what to rate this, honestly. <laughs> I settled on a five, but I'm right on the edge of giving this a six. Yeah. Honestly, this is a great game. Yeah. For all of its thinkiness, the complexity is really not that high. Yeah, no. And that's a great sign. It's really not. For a game like this. This is this is a great one. I Solidly a five, right on the edge of being a six for me. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I can convince you. <laughs> wow. Wow. This game is incredible. This is one of the best games I have ever played and one of the best games I've played in recent memory. This game is in my top 10 games of all time. It has High to praise be. There. It has to be. This game blew my mind how good it was. I'm just blown away by it. Everything that you're doing in this game matters. Every decision is hard. It's filled with tension. The auction is super interesting. Two-fisted auction. You're bidding two different currencies Mm -hmm. to try to figure out what you need, right? And then everything you bid, you don't get to use in the next round and trying to solve that puzzle. I'm not going to rehash all my pros. I'd be tempted to, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to say... That if this idea of this game, of this kind of, as I mentioned, it's kind of like a train game where you're using other people's track and at the end of the round, it all gets ripped up basically. And then it all gets rebuilt again. And it's just organically changing from round to round and trying to figure out, oh, they're kind of going that way. How can I utilize that? Maybe I'll spend some tribe markers. I'm going to delay a little bit, try to get some information. How can I be as efficient as possible? Oh, dude, this game is a six easy for me. Love it. First seven on the podcast. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, it's 
All right, you may have convinced me. Okay. All right. I revised my statement. <laughs> Did I'm I convince the, you? I'm not on the edge anymore. This is a six for me. Oh, dude, folks, this game is so good. It really is. If you want to try to get this game, it is available, believe it or not. There are three copies on Noble Knight. Can you believe? Oh, wow. Yeah. So three copies at Noble Knight. There are also 32 copies on the BGG Marketplace. Okay. Now, they're a little bit expensive, not because it's rare per se, but this is an Asmodee game. So if you're familiar with the first printing of Kimmet, this mm-hmm. game looks like that. Yep, same it's the same art, same component style. It's a bigger box. So you're probably going to pay, you know, $30, $40, maybe $50 for it. But I'm telling you, it's worth it. It's worth every penny, in my opinion. It's so great. Now, I need to give one word of caution. This game was re-released, re-implemented as a game, Rapa Nui, <laughs> interestingly. <laughs> not the Rapa Nui we just reviewed, but Rapa Nui from the same designer. I have not played it. We have not played it, but I read the rules, and it is a different game, okay? Very different. And my suspicion is it's inferior because it doesn't have the tribal markers and it doesn't have the auction. What? I, yeah. Yeah. Don't play this version. Find Giants. Play Giants. Don't play Rapa Nui, the re-implementation. Again, I don't know for sure because I haven't played it, but based on reading the rules, it's not going to be as good. Gotcha. Got it. All right. Man, just want to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> we got to end sometime. All right. So those are our final thoughts on Giants. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Hidden Gems. If you're enjoying what we're doing on the podcast, and we hope that you are, please remember that it's a huge help to us when folks like you give us a rating or review on the various podcast platforms out there or when you follow us on social media. If you're so inclined, please consider supporting the show over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash hidden gems podcast. Remember that our 50th anniversary episode is coming up. So if you want to have input into what's going to be on that episode, definitely go on to BGG and give some thumbs on our geek list. Uh, Also check out the BGG guild while you're there. If you'd like to interact with us or check us out on our discord channel. Until next time, I'm your host, Jason. This is Chris. Thanks for listening. This episode of Hidden Gems, number 46, was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina on January 9th, 2023. Join us again in three weeks as we take on another themed episode. This time, we will be reviewing a trio of games from one of our most beloved intellectual properties, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Hidden Gems is produced and edited by Chris Alley, Cameron Lockie, and Jason Yoncheleff. Our Board Game Geek Guild is monitored and managed by honorary Hidden Gems team member Ghidorah. Our Discord channel is monitored and managed by honorary Hidden Gems team member Snoozefest. Our show's logo was illustrated by designer and artist Caitlin Nieto. Check out her work on Instagram at It's Caitlin Nieto. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to join the discussion on our many social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast, Instagram at hiddengems.podcast, and Twitter at Hidden Gems Board. Disagree with one of our reviews? Have something you want to say about one of the games we discussed today? You can also make your voice heard on our Board Game Geek Guild at boardgamegeek.com, guild number 3874. Once again, thank you for joining us on Hidden Gems, and until next time, fellow gem seekers, enjoy your games and enjoy your search. 